0: Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast. Today's guest is Dan Fagella. Hi there, this is Yarrow and welcome to a second interview with Dan Fagella. So Dan's first interview, which I do recommend you go and listen to if you have not done so already, was a really great dive into how Dan does email segmentation with his mixed martial arts or a Brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, training business. He has an online teaching business and that interview was done three years ago and it was really a great dissection of how to do email segmentation well to make sure the right emails are going to the right people to increase your sales. Now, during that interview, Dan made it very clear that the business he was running at the time was being built to sell, so Dan could move on to his passion project, which is emerging technology around the artificial intelligence world. And he had a goal of selling the business within about six to 12 months from the point that we did the first interview. It took a little longer. It's now three years later that I present to you this part two with Dan Fagella, And in this edition, we're actually gonna look at what Dan did since that first interview and to turn his business into a sellable asset, which is really an important topic if you're like Dan was, a very much personal, branded, expert-focused, online business teacher, coach kind of person because it's hard to sell that kind of business because it's all about you. It's all about your name, your face, your brand your content, your information, you know, you're the one doing interviews and writing blog posts and possibly doing videos, and you're the face on all the products as well. That's the situation Dan was in, and he had to completely change his business to get it ready to sell and to get into a situation where someone who would buy it could see themselves taking it over without it losing value if Dan is not there. So Dan wanted to step away completely. So to get ready to do that, as you're going to learn in this interview, there are quite a few steps and I'm not gonna spoil it for you. Dan breaks down absolutely everything he did to prepare his business for sale and also how he sold it he sold the business for one million dollars which is a a great result and he's moved on to his Uh, technology AI uh, business. He's just getting started with that now in San Francisco. But if you are a person who is a personal branded expert and you're thinking maybe one day you want to sell your business, this is a must listen to interview. Okay, I'll press play on the interview in a second, but before I do, if you've never signed up for my Interviews Club email newsletter, you should go to that right now because that's how you get these interviews and all my podcasts as soon as they're released. I will send you an email. Once I release a new podcast, you'll always be up to date with everything that I publish on the EJ podcast. To sign up for that, just go to interviewsclub.com. Interviewsclub.com is where you'll find the sign-up form. Now, here is the part two interview with Dan Fagella. Dan, thank you for coming on the show again and uh, sharing, which should be hopefully a very exciting part two to your story.
1: Yeah, Yaro, I am glad to be back. I, I literally can't believe that it's been a third of a decade. When you and I were just talking, I was like totally doing a facepalm. But uh, it's 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 great to be able to riff again, and uh, and happy to be here, man.
0: So let's just put this into context because uh, you you had a and it was very successful when I spoke to you. You Already had a very successful teaching online business, and it was uh, you know correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't a uh, you weren't working crazy hours. You were making good money. It was uh, an online business, a lot of freedom. But I do remember you had a a strong drive to get into a completely different industry, which is kind of what your vision was pushing you to do. And uh, you've executed on that. So can you just give us a bit of background of how you reached uh, where you are today?
1: Totally. Um, So, you know, and we might have touched on this certainly off mic, but possibly even in our last interview where Science of Skill, which was the business I just grew and and sold, um, Science of Skill was built for the sole purpose of funding um, a market research and media business in the artificial intelligence and kind of emerging technology space. So uh, by the time I got out of graduate school studying cognitive science at UPenn, um, it was sort of dawning on me that uh, technologies intersection with psychology, that is AI neuroscience, primarily AI initially, um, would have such a grand ethical impact on the world and that, that, kind of policies and what, how businesses and governments steer those, those technologies would be so ethically relevant. I would have to have that as kind of my life purpose. Problem is Yaro, that, that idea was not an idea that would make me money on day one. So, uh, what do I have to do? I had to start at a, uh, location independent, um, high margin recurring revenue business so that I could fund full-time employees for a startup that wasn't making any money. So Science of Skill was the alternative for me, Yaro, to going and raising money out here in San Francisco. Mm. Instead, I decided you know, to make my own seven figures instead of raise somebody else's. So maintain control and guidance of the vision, and Science of Skill was the vehicle to the bigger goal that has been kind of my life purpose uh, since I got out of school.
0: We should clarify. You actually were a teacher of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in physical yes. schools before any of yeah. this, right? That's yeah, how yeah. the well, science of school came about.
1: I, yep, you're right. You're right. Yeah. So the way that I started, uh, well, the, the way that I paid for uh, for college was I taught martial arts. So all my friends were, you know, delivering pizzas or working at Subway. You know, hashing out sandwiches. I'm in a really small town in Rhode Island, or that's where I'm from, now I'm in San Fran, but, um, and so they were all doing jobs that, man, I just could not imagine paying for college, like delivering pizzas. So I started a Jiu Jitsu academy and we built that up to, you know, 4,000 plus square feet, a uh, whole bunch of different instructors and, and, you know, morning classes and evening classes and ended up being, you know, for, for a small town business, actually pretty reasonable fitness and martial arts facility. Um, and you're right. It was, videos from my competition highlights, did a lot of national competing and a lot of kind of, uh, you know, trophies on the wall and whatnot, uh, selling a lot of that stuff, selling seminars and then selling footage from my own gym. So yeah, you're right. Science and skill. The reason it was the funding for my bigger technology venture is because it was the easiest thing to do. Hey, I'm teaching jujitsu already. Let's put a camera on this and let's see if we can sell it on the internet to a broader audience than my small town.
0: So I invite The listener, if you're curious about that business and how it got started to go and listen to part one, you can find that at Entrepreneur's Journey. Just do a search for Dan's name, Dan Fajella. In fact, I did a Google search for your name, Dan, and our interview was on the first page of your results. I know. It's crazy, (laughs) isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's Yeah, we're dominating the, the search rank rankings there so that's good, you can go listen to that you'll yep. learn a, a ton about, I think the best thing about it was segmentation, if you're interested in email marketing, selling digital products and how Dan turned his skill at martial arts into an online business, that's the interview to listen to but we're going to move on I guess to the the second the conclusion to that story I guess is the best way to put it because yeah. you you had built a business that was making good money and You must have at some point, uh, I think, in fact, when I was speaking to you for that interview, you were already saying um, it's time to start getting ready to turn this into a sellable asset so you can move on to your your next business idea. So, maybe go back in time, even to three years ago, just after we did the first interview. um, What was the sort of your thinking at that point? What needed to change uh, with your business and what were you learning about to get it ready for sale?
1: Yeah, there's so many considerations here, Yaro, but I, I definitely have had so much time to think and so much uh, face-to-face experience that I think I can distill the most important points actually pretty easily. As I mentioned, again, even in that old interview, this is a third of a decade ago, uh, the goal was built to sell. So um, when I talked to you, when we sold the business, we were doing well over $200,000 a month in revenue um, with you know 20% or a little bit more in the margin side. Um, so it's a much bigger business than when we first chatted, but when you and I first chatted, we were doing maybe 45 grand a month, mostly recurring revenue, uh, kind of crazy margins back then. I think it was like 28% or something ridiculous. Um, and,
0: uh, just to clarify that that's, that's 28% you kept as profit, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: 28% profit on, on 45 grand top line, uh, re, you know, rolling month over month. So, um, I think our actual we might have closed that year out over 30 in terms of margin on the aggregate, which was pretty nuts because it was we didn't actually have that many physical products. Then we started doing more physical and kind of uh, hit the margins a little bit. But hmm. um, with that being mentioned, uh, the, the goal was to sell. So I thought, honestly, we hit 45 grand of recurring. Hey, you know, I might be able to get a third of a million bucks for this thing and just move right on to to my bigger technology venture, and that's what I'm ultimately going to want to do. What I ended up having to do was spend 40 hours a week on science of skill and then another 40 hours a week on tech emergence um, and kind of chop up my 80- or 90-hour work weeks into two companies instead of one because, as it turns out, Yaro, there's a bunch of really important considerations. I'm going to give you the high-level, hardcore stuff that has nothing to do with personality but still matters a ton if you want to sell. And then we'll talk a little bit about depersonalization and kind of making a a saleable asset. The first big thing is, A, if you want to sell a digital publishing company, you're you're very unlikely to find any kind of strategic buyer. You're normally only going to have somebody with a financial interest. By strategic buyer, Yara, what I mean is, you know, if you run a biotech firm, right, and you, you have some drug that you've patented for treating some skin condition that, you know, 50 million people per year get, um, you don't have to be making a dime in your, your profit and loss statement for you to be bought out for large sums of money um, because that asset is worth more than your current financial turnover to an acquirer. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So in, in, the, in the digital publishing space, um strategic acquisitions of that nature are very unlikely financial buyers are are almost inevitably going to be the only folks that you'll have to purchase your business these are people who are going to value your company at a multiple of your profit uh or possibly your profit plus your salary there's all kinds of wacky ways that they do these things but i mean if we think about it in easy terms it's a multiple of your profit um most digital publishing businesses never sell because a lot of them are using really sketchy marketing, which scares away buyers, and also uh, the vast majority of them are based on personalities that, that make them unsaleable. So um, if you're gonna sell, you're usually gonna have a bank do the financing, so a bank is gonna throw down most of the money. In order for a bank to do that, Yaro, um, you basically need three years of tax returns for a bank to take seriously the proposition of throwing down cash for your company, particularly because it's an internet business. Banks like hard assets. They want you to have trucks, pizza ovens, buildings, um, and all kinds of really heavy, fancy equipment, because if you go broke, they want to be able to have that stuff to sell and recoup some of the loan. They don't want to just have an Infusionsoft account with a bunch of email addresses in it, because they don't know how to make that make money, right? You and I do, but a bank is... You know, I mean, most of these banks started in, what, the 20s, like mm. 18, 20s sometimes? Like, they have no idea what's going on with the internet. And, and the appraisers of these, these things really are not all that hot and heavy for internet companies. So in order to convince them to uh, get a sale done, you will need very thick cash flows, and you will need very thick cash flows for three or more years. Only then will a bank say... Ugh, I don't understand this damn internet crap, but I'm willing to throw up cash for this thing. Only only after those tax returns. So when you and I had chatted, I don't even know if we had done our first full year of tax returns. We were mm-hmm. like a baby. We were just a little baby, Yara. When you and I chatted, I mean, it must have been December 2013. We hadn't even filed a single year, right? So um, it, it, we needed we needed more evidence for a bank to be able to, to throw down. That's kind of the short the short and narrow of it. Uh, And that is a little bit troubling for people like me who went into it saying, man, I want to flip this thing fast. Now, you know, I got three times more than I was expecting, right? I I wasn't ever thinking I'd sell it for over a million dollars, and we did, but it took me a little bit longer because banks need that proof of cash flow. Happy to go into personalization, but if you want to ask about that, we can do
0: Yeah, it. I do have one question with that. So, uh, obviously, it's not the bank that buys it, the bank funds the buyer. Yes, so, they you're fund saying it for a buyer, yes, yeah, so the, the buyer. you would find a buyer, they'd have to get the capital from the bank. So, now, correct me if I'm wrong, that's a more typical scenario because of these higher valuations. Because I know. Back when I used to do buying and selling of websites I, I certainly wasn't getting loans I was spending you know five grand 10 grand here and there um, but you don't normally find someone who's got a, a cool half a million or a million dollars just in in cash they have to go get a loan to buy the business
1: yes totally right so yara I, I will be honest about that too um, I, I would have had a much easier time selling this company if we stayed at 45 grand a month instead I kept doubling it Um, you know, and, and I, I wanted to get to multiple millions in revenue because I I needed the funds for tech emergence, right? Tech Mm. emergence is going to be a very, very expensive, you know, AI market research kind of venture out here. Uh, I want to have as much cash as possible for good talent and for, uh, you know, the best website we can have. And so I'm going to grow, grow, grow and throw that profit into, into my life purpose. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it would have been easier to sell if we wanted a third of a million because. Any bank is willing to part with a quarter million bucks, but to find a bank that's willing to send a nine hundred thousand dollar wire, you know, mm. you got to prove a lot more stuff, Yaro, and, gotcha. and you got to work with a you got to work with a broker who's a, who's a real grown up. You, you can't you can't just go on Flippa and get that done.
0: Right. So let's not talk about brokers and making sales, Nick. And I do want to, and I, I we will cover that. But let's just talk a little bit more about the like you said, you, you called it depersonalization. So yeah. just to set the scene. If someone or people who are buying all these science of skill products, so you've got all these video courses and you had DVDs and all this training, it was all Dan the teacher as the face teaching how to do uh, martial arts, right? So um, that in itself and, and also all the articles. I remember when we did the last interview, you, would, you were writing articles for all these other publications. So Dan yeah, yeah, Dan yeah. Fagella from Science of Skill was the brand, the name, the face, the teacher in the content, in the products. Dan was everywhere. Now as a potential buyer, I'm concerned because I buy this from you and everyone expects Dan to be the guy running the business and now it's not yep. anymore. So yeah. that... A, it's a huge deterrent for a new buyer. Um, it's also a potential loss of all the customers when they do buy it. So, you must have considered that when you were going in to prepare your business for sale. So, how did you deal with that Heavily. factor?
1: Yep. So this is a, this is definitely another factor for sale as well. And we would have never gotten ninety percent cash down if it wasn't blatantly evident that if I was assassinated the next day, we would still make just as much money the following month. Um, so, uh, in the beginning, Yaro, especially when you and I talked, I, I don't know if I was nine months into the business when I talked with you, you know what I mean? I had barely sold my martial arts gym at that time. My first exit was from my martial arts Academy, um, which, you know, was not a big business. It was about a quarter million dollar a year business, but it was still, you know, substantial enough, uh, to sell. I had barely sold that when you and I chatted. So the beginning of our products, Yaro, were because the barrier to entry was so low to getting it done. The beginning products were, Me, Dan Fagella, selling my competition videos, you know, national tournament stuff, my seminars, uh, you know, all over the US, um, and my classes because it didn't cost anything to film me. However, uh, you know, one or two years in, um, it it was a, a huge push for us to get other instructors on board. And by the time we sold it, we had maybe eight or so people everywhere from Norway to Los Angeles to Philadelphia. Um, who we could pay them and we could pay a film crew that we knew in their area to go and film, let's say a four hour course, a two hour course. And then those would be the products that we would sell in our memberships. And then we would sell in our courses. In addition to that, we started emphasizing a lot more, um, physical products that weren't even instructional. So we started selling a lot of Smith and Wesson's, uh, products, Smith and Wesson's, a a large firearms manufacturer that also makes a lot of, uh, self-defense knives. So, uh, like, you know, tactical folding knife stuff and things like that. So we started selling a lot more hard products too. But yeah, about two years in Yaro, the big goal was we want to be an aggregator of expertise. And if you go to scienceskill.com and you look at instructors, sure, you'll see me there, but you'll also see a Marine Corps scout sniper. You'll also see a Silicon Valley bodyguard guy who's like got crazy experience protecting like 100 millionaires. Uh, You'll also see... Brazilian jiu-jitsu expert in Texas Uh, you'll also see a karate expert in the Netherlands um so we very quickly expanded it out so that people were excited for the suite of products and we trickled away 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 from me and and uh for the last two and a half years two two years of the business there were zero new filmed footage pieces of me in a sales letter in an instructional course in a membership site in anything I was completely void for many videos for like two years before we sold, and I filled it up with other people um, who could fulfill our mission of teaching self-defense with a drilling and skill development emphasis.
0: Mm -hmm. So I've got a couple of questions about that, Dan, because you know Do I'm it. I'm a great example because I am Yarrow, the face of entrepreneurs' journey and all my training right. products and so on. So let's say I wanted to replicate the what you did with Science of Skill, and I was to bring on uh, some more teachers of, of entrepreneurship and blogging and internet marketing and podcasting and so on. What what was the the sort of structure? How did you oh, yeah. how did you think about like you know revenue share? Um, you know, if you're not in the sales video, do you get them to do the sales video? I uh, used like what? What's what's your responsibility? I guess, sure, sure. and what's their <laughs> yeah, this responsibility? Is,
1: this is the way that I did it, and everybody's story is going to be different. But you know, for me, Yaro, the most important thing in my life is to move on to sort of informing global policy around AI, and so exit is sort of the only goal uh, that I had in mind. So, um, doing a revenue share is not really going to be viable because it's. I think it's a lot harder to sell a business when it's like, and at the end of every month you do all this accounting and then you cut all these other checks to all these other people. It it just becomes a little bit less attractive and it it becomes a sticking kind of factor. At the end of the day, Yaro, the way that I see it is this. um, Someone who does filming for me should not be punished if I suck at marketing. In other words, Yaro, if I can't move the product, they shouldn't, have wasted their time because of that. Does that make sense?
0: Right. Similarly, so, yeah.
1: similarly, here's the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin is, if I've worked my nads off for three or four years to build a massively profitable business by foregoing all holidays and weddings of my friends, <laughs> then by all means, Yaro, that revenue will be mine. And so the way I did it, was I took I asked them very straightforward what do you charge for a private lesson per hour I multiplied that by two and then often I gave them another hundred bucks you know like as a bonus at the end of the project but I multiplied their per hour um, you know personal fee that they would do for any other project I doubled it and then I said if I don't even sell one of these, you're still gonna have all the cash in your hand. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I sell a thousand of them, there's gonna be a lot more people who know your name and I'm probably gonna pay you again for another project. Mm -hmm. So the split for me was doing it that way and that ensured that I didn't have any more hooks in the business that would scare away buyers because that was not congenial with my ultimate purpose.
0: And they were okay with you on selling their training like that? Did you have a contract for it? All, all
1: all, All day long. So yeah, they were perfectly fine with it Um and now look in in online business this might be different, but for most hobbies and most like activities, so I mean, let me just ramble for you, Yarrow. I don't know, mountain biking, boxing, uh you know, flying drones with a remote control, uh surfing, skateboarding, um, gardening and growing tomatoes. If you wanted, I would just I would rattle those off for another seven hours until you fell asleep. Um, but I won't. But you get the point. The point is like skills in general um, aren't tremendously high paying. In other words, most martial arts guys, if you tell them they're going to make a thousand dollars on a Saturday for spending four hours, you know, getting their name and face out in front of a bigger crowd, they're totally going to do it. And Yaro, here's the thing, man. I didn't force anybody to do anything. So nobody went forward and did these programs with me unless they enthusiastically were pumped up to double their private lesson rate in raw cash uh, for a filming project. And to mm. be honest, some of those courses flopped, Yaro. And if we did a revenue share, they wouldn't have made a dime. Mm. Um, so so um, that was the arrangement we had. And I never forced anybody's hand. I just simply asked people. I said, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's how we compensate for it. If you want to get on the phone, I respect your skills. Uh, I think our audience would enjoy what you teach and I, I'd like to catch up and you know, X percent of them said yes and bada bing bada boom we you know, grow a multi-million dollar company.
0: <laughs> that easy. Um, so Just to clarify that, you, you go and film with them, you've got all this footage, you know how to create a product, does your company and I'm assuming it's your contractor team they write the sales page. so You've got a copywriter. Um, yeah, you yeah. then run some content through email to launch a new product or create some sort of evergreen marketing campaign, maybe Facebook ads and so on. Is that kind of how it happened? You're almost like a, a university for selling other people's education, almost like an Udemy or a Linda nowadays. That, yeah, be correct?
1: that That becomes the ballgame. Now, if I had stuck around in this business to get it to 10 or twenty million. I I would have, you would have seen that go to an entirely new level. But again, my goal was uh, artificial intelligence and kind of the implications of transhumanism much more so than selling things uh, on the internet. So, Mm. um, but yeah, if if I was still running it, uh, you would see that manifesting even more and more. But yeah, the the game plan really was to model a Udemy. And of course, this was a stepwise process, Yara. So I didn't go from it just being me in the beginning to it never being me anymore. It was a gradual transition. And I think I would advise for people who are in a similar boat who want A, to sell, or B, to have the option to sell later on. If you want to be able to cash out and just have, you know, get two commas kind of popped into your bank account and just kind of unplug, if you want at least the option, right, you don't have to do it, but if you want the option, um, I think that the thing to do and what I was forced to do, this is three years ago, was – Lay out in a spreadsheet of some kind or on a piece of paper. Sometimes I think better with an open piece of paper and I don't transfer it to the computer until I'm done doodling. I get a cup of coffee. I have no screens around me and I just write it and determine uh, stepwise in phases. What would it look like to um, to make your value proposition? So at the top of the paper, you would write down what your core value prop was. For us, this was um, skill development oriented self-defense instruction, so drilling, uh, you know, real kind of exercises and training in addition to just techniques, um, you know, simple digestible, how to train, not just how to punch, how to get good at that punch. That was the value prop, right? That was my graduate school degree in the Ivy leagues was skill development. Uh, that's what we were initially selling. That was a value prop. So how can we have that value prop delivered to our audience without the requirement of me as a person? So they, The people who were coming to us, sure, some of them liked me, but to be honest, they got value out of the program. It wasn't my smiling and my jokes, right? I'm not that funny and I'm not that handsome. They were getting something out of the content. So what does it look like to deliver on as much, if not more of that value prop absent me as a human being? Mm -hmm. Now, for, for me, Yaro, I was still the voice of the emails for multiple years, for like a year and a half, two years. Um, but what started happening is, um, we would, all the courses we would release were from different people and I, I was maybe part of them or I would interview them. So I would bridge the personality gap to bring in these other instructors. Mm -hmm. Like I would have a blog post that I would write with, let's say Mikhail Abdullah or Adam Tickner or whatever. I would publish content about or with them that would sort of make it clear that, Hey, the head of the company, Dan, that you all know he's buddies with this guy, he likes and respects this person, and here's what he thinks they're good at, and it's still coherent with our value prop, so I kind of bridged the personality gap by introducing all these new people and then what happened, Yaro, is I started having Timothy and then eventually Marcus uh, at the bottom of, let's say half of, and then eventually all of my emails, so Tim started sending out the Saturday-Sunday email went out under Tim instead of me and then Marcus was sending out you know, when he was doing some of the scheduling, he would do maybe like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday would be under Marcus. And eventually, instruction became – was. Uh, eventually, I wasn't even introducing the new instructors. We're just launching them. And eventually, none of the emails even had my name at the bottom of the damn emails. I was just one of many instructors who had, at this point, kind of been mostly forgotten on the instructor page. And that, that took, you know, two, three years of progress. Mm. But I bridged the personality gap uh, with instructional – I faded back my own content output to maybe about half. I faded back my my name under the emails to maybe only 70% instead of 100%. And then I gradually dragged those percentages back. Keeping an eye on profit, keeping an eye on email response rates, keeping an eye on my metrics, right? I wasn't doing this blind, Yarrow. I'm very much a data-driven guy. But um, keeping an eye on the prize allowed me to do what I just told you, deliver on the value prop heavily and thoroughly without my personal presence. That's going to be a phasic approach, and I just told you how I did it. You might go about it another way, somebody else might go about it another way, but you have to deliver your value, but I I do think it is quite limiting if that value is entirely predicated on you. Very few businesses of substance are are built that way.
0: Mm. How did you uh, remunerate these instructors when they started writing emails? Did they become like regular contractors because it's different from producing a video to actually writing emails every single week for the company.
1: I should totally totally, uh, correct the statement there. Tim and Marcus, who I just mentioned, they were not instructors. Timothy and Marcus were uh, part of my team so Tim was really my right hand man. He was like my real soldier, who was with me from the early days, like when I first talked to you. Tim was with me, and he was just an excellent, excellent team member. Uh, he was actually compensated really, really well when we sold because he put up with me for you know three, four years. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so, but he was a team member, so he was not a teacher, Yaro. Right. So the the copywriting was all done in house, and those were people that I groomed myself and I worked with one-on-one until I felt confident just letting them do their own thing and not even looking at their email so it was a grooming over the course of you know six months to get Tim to the point where he could write emails without my uh, interference or guidance but yes uh, none of the instructors were responsible for copy because they are not professional copywriters they're professional at their skills and I didn't want to force them to do things that were not their expertise so our team did all the copy because they were very good at that The instructors only did what they loved to do, except they got paid twice as much as they would as if I took a private lesson. So uh, that's the only thing they were responsible for. Everything else was us. I generally did not even have them in the sales video, Yaro. The sales videos, uh, well, actually most of our products, interestingly enough, we didn't have sales videos. We just had sales pages. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we ever did a video, it would be Tim or something who would put it together, and the instructor might not even be in it. Um, So the, the demands on them were very clearly... Stand in front of the camera for three hours and show us how to perform these techniques. Uh, show us the drills and exercises that are going to build proficiency in these particular skills because that's that was really what, what we were all about. Uh, and then we'll close the camera up and then your your PayPal account is going to have a bunch of money in it. And hopefully we'll catch up in a couple months and do it again.
0: Okay. So it's coming together for me. You've got these outside trainers that you're essentially hiring to then create content, which I assume can be both product and content for marketing purposes you've got your team producing email content which is really probably taking you out of your biggest job i know email and blog posts is my biggest job and as well as coordinating the team the only thing i'm really missing here to create a truly automated business that does run entirely without you is the actual acquisition of of traffic and and getting these new customers through the door and back when i first interviewed you you were hustling like, or you had been hustling like crazy, both producing content for your own site and guest posts, uh, magazines, publicities. What what happened with that? Like how did you automate that side of the business?
1: Great question, Yaro. Um, to be honest, I wish, you know, looking back on it, I wish I had kept up the content game and hired somebody else to do content. But when it, what ended up happening is we got much better at um, paid email. And so what took us to... You know, uh, over two million dollars in sales uh, was actually not blog post and organic traffic. It's actually, I mean, and you are—you probably know this yourself. It's very difficult to double your revenue based purely on organic growth. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So organic growth is a beautiful and wonderful thing. And to be honest, if I could turn back the clock, I would have stuck with more of it. But I was a little bit frustrated, and uh, I wanted to grow faster because I want as much kind of resources as i could for tech emergence um and and we wanted to grow quickly in fact uh based on 2016's numbers science of skills should be in the inc 500 not the 5000 the inc 500 uh for 2017 because we we had like a thousand percent growth rate over the course of three years because we you know doubled and doubled or more than doubled and more than doubled and more than doubled so a lot of growth and, and in order to do that we needed more than organic so what became our main marketing channel yarrow is we found audiences that were responsive to our offers, and we found marketing channels to get in front of those audiences. So let me give you an example. Um, I personally don't own a firearm, Yaro, and I never have. In fact, nobody in my family ever has. I don't have anything overtly against firearms per se. I think there's, it makes a lot of sense for there to be uh, regulations in that category, but this isn't a political conversation. I'm talking to you about like paying rent. Um, so the the firearms community, uh, as it turns out, is actually quite interested in practical self-defense instruction. So in terms of hand-to-hand stuff, defending against bladed weapons, um, using a firearm indoors without, you know, accidentally shooting through a wall and hurting a neighbor or something, you know, being able to control kind of an indoors firearms environment uh, as much as possible, all these different instructional topics that we were selling, as it turns out, the, the firearm owners' communities – we're really, really, really interested in this stuff. Another community that ended up being really interested in this stuff, Yarrow, um, was people who are into homesteading, so people that are into self-reliance and kind of living on the land and living off the grid and those kind of folks, for whatever reason, they were also interested in self-defense, uh, so self-reliance, and se- we, we learned, Yarrow, and I never would have thought this, in fact, I never started the business to do this, that self-defense is kind of a sub interest of self reliance. And Mm -hmm. again, I I didn't know that until I experimented. But what we did Yaro is we found people with email lists of let's say 100,000, 200,000 people in all these different niches and segments. A lot of the time we would go through agencies. There's an agency called email abilities, for example, run by a guy named Scott, I forget his last name. Uh, This is one of a million agencies. If you Google email abilities, there's a ton of other competitors to them. But Um, These agencies build relationships in different niches and industries. So they might build relationships in the nutrition and health space, in the firearm space, in the conservative political group space, in the um, solar energy space, right? And what what they'll let you do is spend, you know, a thousand and a half, maybe four thousand dollars, you know, something in that range. Um, Every now and again, you could do small tests for maybe 500, 700 bucks. And you can put your message in an email out to. Those audience groups, and what we did is we developed a methodology to test with smaller tests a whole bunch of different industries and segments. We found who 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 was biting, and we found a repeatable, ongoing process to uh, pay to get more exposure and traffic to a rotation of offers uh, via email. So email ended up being the channel that could double us. We could never have done the Inc. 500 thing without. Uh, A channel stronger than organic so we Mm. really needed paid acquisition and as it turns out email marketing ended up letting us Kind of bust that multi-million dollar ceiling and and get an exit that was reasonable Mm. very important for the buyers Yaro was knowing Hey, Dan, if you leave can I spend the same? 40 grand you do every month and make the same 1.7x return on that 40 grand over the course of the next three or four months and we had a system where they understood that they they could do that, and that's one of the reasons they were able to to put mm-hmm. down such a hefty down payment.
0: Nice. Do you mind sharing, uh, if if you have, uh, where where do you source these sorts of email um, opportunities?
1: Oh, great question. Um, there, there are, again, there are agencies like uh, Email Abilities is the only one that comes to mind. Timothy was actually the one managing all the email spend. So. I was not actually part of that operational process, but email abilities was one of the agencies we used. Another thing that I did Yaro is, is I would find blogs with a substantial amount of traffic, let's say half a million or more visitors uh, per month. And and there's very easy tools for this, right? Like a a similar web has like a plugin where you can kind of get a traffic estimate on sites. It's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. So we'd find people with half a million or more um, monthly visitors in a niche that we knew was responsive to our material. And, what i would do is i would find a forum or a blog and i would go to websites like there's all kinds of websites where you can put in like siteslike.com i think and there's mm-hmm. a million mm-hmm. urls like this where you can find you know 20 websites that's very similar to the url that you pop in at the top so if it's a if it's a blog all about um, solar energy or it's a forum all about like martial arts um, it'll find a whole bunch of websites that are very similar. And what I looked for was websites that already had advertising. I'm not going to try to convince somebody to do advertising if they don't do it already, but I would look for people who are already accepting money in exchange for exposure. And I would email them and say, Hey, I saw you have these banners. This is our growing business. We serve this kind of an audience, and I know that, you know, martial arts people or firearms people or whoever their audience was, um, is really interested in our, our material. I'd love to be able to get on the phone, see what your options are for advertising and try to get something in the books for the next couple months. So we spend, you know, a thousand bucks here, 2000 bucks there, 500 bucks here, scattered across a whole bunch of different websites. We had about 25% of our spend per month dedicated to exploring new options. And a lot of it was just by doing sites like, and once we found something with a strong ROI, we would just continue the investment with different product rotations Um, and continue to milk it. And that was actually one of our our kind of critical scaling factors uh, was finding a process to source those new sites.
0: Mm. Okay, so it's all coming together, Dan. I can see it in my head here. You've brought on an, an external source of content and product. Your team can pretty much handle all the coordination of the content, the sending of emails, the running of campaigns. You've got new sources of traffic that can be tapped into and located by a future buyers, they don't feel worried that they're gonna have a loss of customer acquisition when they take over the business. Um, You're introducing new personalities everywhere, so you're no longer the face, uh, at least you're a face among many uh, within the business. So it's become something that can function without you and has standalone value, can deliver profit. So a new potential owner can take over and feel confident that that money will keep coming in and potentially even grow if they do more of what's already working plus other new things. So let's take the story forward. Once you had reached the point where you've executed on all that, which I have no doubt would have taken probably years, took, took me three years since I've last spoke to you probably to set yeah, all that up. Yeah. Um, when you think, okay, this is all running now without me, uh, when did you and how did you make the initial decision or you know initial activity to sell this business what did you do
1: yeah well I, I had actually been working with buyers all along so like I said I mean I've been trying to sell this thing from day one and scrapping to find banks who would be willing to fund um, you know a digital business which is not easy it was you know half the time it was easier to find buyers than it was banks who, who were willing to fund uh, such a young company. Right. Um, but, uh, so I I was working with brokers all along, so I didn't decide to get with a broker, um, you know, right before I sold. But what I will say is this, um, the threshold for me, Yaro was when we had three years of tax returns. So not until 2016 came to a close, did I have three years of actual tax returns for this company? Only at that point was I basically confident that not only could we get buyers, but banks would now be forced to take us seriously because they would see us more than double too many years in a row. They would see too much margin. And even if they weren't excited about an online business, they don't understand it. They don't like it. They, they don't get it. Um, they would have to respect the cash flow enough to value a seven-figure valuation. So I was trying to sell all along, but I went a little bit extra hard after the end of, uh, or yeah, basically after, you know, 2016 was coming to a close um, because I knew I had tax returns to to back up the sale. So one of the first things I did, Yarrow, and looking back in time, this is uh, about as valuable a bit of guidance as I could give anybody who's your listener, um, is I found a broker who I was very confident had sold businesses like mine. Now let me go into a pinch of detail. Um, Most online businesses are not going to ever sell for seven figures most online businesses are not ever going to ask for 90% cash up front. Um, those are just not things that happen uh, with digital publishing. It's just not really a, a very, you know, I mean, one out of every X hundred digital publishing businesses sells for that, those kind of numbers. So what I needed was a broker with seven figure experience. What someone tuned into this episode Yaro might need is someone with a broker who sold at their price point. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I realized looking back, you know, two or three of the brokers that I had talked to in the past, some of them I work with, uh, some of them I didn't, um, had had probably never sold a seven-figure price tag company ever, like not even one. And so I realized like, damn, that could have been a big hindrance for them trying to kind of have buyer conversations when I was working with them because – this is like making them shake in their boots. They don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. They, they don't, they don't, they're not comfortable asking for this kind of money. So I needed to find a broker very experienced with my price point and also experienced with my kinds of business, which was digital publishing. So I found a guy uh, named Jason at the quiet light, uh, agency and, um, and I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. I, they have, you know, they've kept my name protected in terms of like testimonials. Like they're not going to write about me, but I'm happy to talk about Jason. He was a great guy. He, he had done a ton of seven figure deals and he had done bigger seven figure deals than mine was. Um, and so, and he really doesn't sell like $200,000 exits. Like he doesn't even do that stuff. Like he doesn't do anything under half a million bucks or more. Um, and so uh, I, I made a point Yaro To chase after him, he had a good rep from a couple people that I I had talked to in the industry, to chase him down and say, hey, here's why I think you're the man for the job. Here's why I know this is a good business, and let's get on the phone and talk together. And I made him feel like uh, he was kind of the golden hero and the champion for this thing, Um, and that kind of gave him the motivation to want to sell it. And I also knew he had the requisite experience. So finding the right broker and having three years of tax returns were two very critical factors for us getting a seven-figure
0: exit. Okay. So it sounds like the broker is a really, really big part of this equation. Um, How much of the brokering process do you know about it? Like, did you sort of just say, here's my numbers, here's my, my, my tax returns, my financials? Um, and then he goes and yeah. does his work or are you like heavily involved in, in the actual selling process?
1: Um it was pretty it was pretty back and forth and to be honest, um one thing that I've learned a lot about brokers is that um they are more motivated when you're more motivated. So if a broker asks for information, even if it's annoying, you just send it to them. And if a broker asks for help on something and you like email them back 20 minutes later with enthusiasm, what, what that kind of does for them is, it, is it, it kind of makes them more excited to sell your offer than the lazy buyers who never help them. Mm-hmm. So it is a little bit of a back and forth process. And this is why it's very important that by the time you're at a point where you're selling your company, you should uh, be away from doing too much daily operations. Because I've spent days where six hours of my day was helping the broker. And if I was 100% necessary to operate the business we would have like flopped on that day, right? Mm-hmm. We would have not delivered on our key objective. So um, working with a broker is time consuming. Um, but his main job was getting out listings in, in via his email list, via uh, some other business listing websites and basically putting up our business for sale and fielding initial phone calls. So he would take initial phone calls. He would figure out who's good, who's bad. And I think he got me on the phone with like seven potential buyers in like the first five days. So we had a, a lot of early interest because, you know, with the three tax returns, we had very clear kind of steep growth, very strong growth. And uh, the multiple we were asking for was not, not egregious and outrageous. The, the cash payment was actually pretty outrageous, but people kind of overlooked that because the overall asking price was not overly aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, so his job was get all the data for me, work a lot with me, ask me a bunch of questions and then blast out his listings and then it was his job to vet out the viable versus non-viable potential buyers and get, you know, arrange conference calls uh, for us to, to sort of move forward together. We eventually settled on a small uh, or a small set of these guys that we believed in. Then we eventually boiled it down to kind of one buyer group that seemed to have the most promise and seemed to be the most um, capable actually of, of running the business and I just felt like they would be the right people to hand over the business to. And we just kept the conversation going. Luckily, uh, four months after talking with Jason, we we got the deal closed. Doesn't always work like that. Again, I was trying to sell this thing for years, so I don't want anybody to think it's easy. But that's kind of how the process went. Um, once we had the tax returns in place, it was a, a much easier process because – all the banks were were ready to give the green light.
0: Mm. I find it interesting that you focus so much on the banks because I would have assumed it's the buyer who has to really organize finance, um, but I can see you saw that as a major stumbling block for selling your business. so when it came to doing the deal, did you say here 's a bank that can fund you like were you that connecting uh, with the buyer or did they still sort of sort out their own finance?
1: you know I actually had a connection uh, that I had built um, with Bank of California out here um, who and they, they see a little bit more transaction volume with you know internet businesses right um, and they respect that unlike most kind of small town banks but the buyers who ended up acquiring our company had previously acquired a number of companies in the past and they had bought some um, software as a service businesses that were selling into governments. And so they were interested, they had already done recurring revenue businesses. They had already done software, internet based businesses, and they had used a bank partner in Ohio where they live, um, to actually fund those other transactions. So they already had a banker who believed in them, believed in their financial performance, and had helped them acquire software companies in the past. Mm -hmm. So when they had this recurring revenue online publishing business, that bank and that relationship ended up being the one that got the deal done, not my connections. Uh, But that was just a pure point of luck. A lot of the time, I think it would have been me fighting for the banking relationships because to ask a bank to put up 90% upfront is a big ask, yarrow, especially when you're talking about a million bucks. Mm. Um, And and that was a major hurdle and, and, uh, you know, tax returns helped, but that was a big point of emphasis. But luckily, as I just said, um, these buyers were quite experienced. uh, They were capable. They had relationships with bankers for past deals. And those bankers felt great about you know cutting a big check and sending a big wire and calling it a day.
0: And that's how it goes. Is it simply a case of deal gets done, sign the contracts, uh, and then you just get this massive deposit into your bank account based on the the terms of the deal? And you're-
1: yeah, I mean, uh, luckily Yaro. So the, the terms of my sale, a lot of people that sell companies like this, they sell for you know thirty or forty percent cash down, and then they're like legally bound to like six months to 18 months of, of ongoing work because, and what is that, what is that mostly Yaro? That's a signal that the buyers didn't think it would run without you. Right? Right. So it was very important for me to build a business that did not require me. And so, uh, I did a lot of work proving how little work I was actually doing in the business. Uh, because I had to validate two things, y'all I had to validate, here's why you should trust giving me 90% of the cash up front. And here's why you should trust uh, not having me obligated to doing very much for you at all. Uh, once you have the passwords and once you get a little bit of help with some of the meeting rhythms, I'm basically expecting you to be on your own. And if you need me, you can call me, but there's there's really no strings attached here. So those two things, 90% cash and, and very low obligation in the long term, those are very dangerous for buyers. Mm. Um, so in order for me to get them to uh, but, but I, I need my time for tech emergence, right? It's not right. a question. I'm not allowed to stick around in e-commerce land forever. I have to go. So um, so in order to convince them of that, uh, I had to build all the systems and processes to make the business run uh, without me. And now luckily it very much did. if they, if they really needed my help and if anything fell apart, I definitely would have been there for them. I I really like the buyers. I think they're awesome people. They're treating my employees like gold. They're they're uh, investing in all kinds of cool areas, the company with a lot more resources than I ever was, and I have a ton of respect for them. But we did come to an understanding that in this case, not for all sales, Yarrow, but in this case, I would have to go. I, I could not stay. So we, you know, they had to be convinced of the systems, and, and that was it. So I cannot I cannot tell you that everybody listening will sell their company and be able to unplug. But I've, I've literally had four or five um, operations related phone calls, all of which have been no longer than an hour with the buyers since we shook hands. Mm-hmm. Um, so m- in my case is on the very far extreme of completely unplugging and the very far extreme of heavy cash down. So uh, I built the business explicitly with that in mind. If, if you haven't built a good enough process, you might be not be able to do that if you don't have the same luck you know, and it wasn't luck for me, by the way. You're always just three years of trying to sell it, okay? So uh, fortune for, fortune fortune doesn't, fortune and, and fate don't treat me any different than they will any of your listeners. I, I was not smiled on by fortune. Um, but, but you know, we found the right fit. And in my case, yes, you're right. But not in every case. Mm.
0: You're reminding me I sold a business for $100,000, so 10% of your deal. And uh, it was all, well, it wasn't quite all cash out front. It was half of it. Up front, and half of it a month later once they got the website and everything, you know, they oh, felt nice. comfortable. And I remember too, the post-sale, how much interaction I had with them and, and it was similar. It was uh, a couple of phone calls maybe in the month or two afterwards and then I never spoke to them again. And it was just like you because I structured that business to run as much as it could without me. It was actually 100% without me by the time I sold it. So, um, yeah, yeah, it can be done, I think, is the the important point. But it really does take strategic intent to to build a business that way.
1: Deliberate, consistent, systematic intent, beginning with the end in mind. That's definitely not an accidental result. I wish I could tell you I was such a genius that I did all the right steps on day one. I had to learn the hard way on all this stuff, but um, once I knew what would be most valuable to a buyer, I basically built a business that I knew was gonna kick butt for them, be very easy for them to operate, and uh, and they felt that that was fair. So I, I built something that was valuable for them and they were able to agree to terms that served both of our needs. So that was, uh, again, a very deliberate effort, just like it must have been for you whenever mm. you sold that one. So yeah, that was the, that was the story.
0: So let's sort of head towards wrapping up the the interview, Dan. Let's just factor in the people listening into this and they're now thinking, okay, I really do want to build this to sell. There is another direction I want to go in. But I'm already vested in my expertise, you know, whatever it is. You gave plenty of examples from skateboarding to boxing. And, you know, I've got yeah, examples yeah, from yeah. my students, from skincare experts to uh, writing about sports or, you know, back pain, whatever it might be. But they already have yeah. businesses there. They're making money in that space either as a coach. Maybe they're building up to sell digital products. Uh, and they're committed to that for the next two years. But they really do want to sell it. And they know they can't sell something that's 100% their personal brand and they're doing all the work, especially if they're a coach, for example, like you could not, it's difficult to sell. I mean, you could sell a a jujitsu studio to another coach, I guess, but with the online world, all the contents from you, it's very hard to take over that kind of business. So what would be, and you could tell me whether it's one, two, or, or three pieces of advice that they might not be considering right now, like today, even if they're just getting started, to implement, even if it's something simple like don't register the domain name as your own personal name. You know, get yeah, something yeah, like yeah, scienceofskill.com that's a brand that's not your name. You know, anything yeah. like that you can think of to to offer advice to people.
1: Totally. One thing I'll say is I, I, I definitely don't want to tell anybody else what their goals should be. I think some of your listeners, they, they don't ever want to sell. My goals have explicitly been large multinational enterprise level, big business, like I'm gonna require a ton of resources, I'm gonna require a ton of work. Um, like my goals uh, preclude me building a personal brand, right? Many people, to feed their children and live a life that would make them happy, um, they don't need uh, the same number of things and so they shouldn't necessarily do it for its own sake. But like you said, to your point, if they did wanna sell, what's the advice? Certainly Yaro, I mean, if the entire brand is predicated around your name, that's tough. Now, look, what, who do you got in that category? You got Tony Robbins and you got Oprah, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and God bless him, okay? God bless him. But Tony Robbins can't sell Tony Robbins' company for as much as Michael Bloomberg can sell Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. Um, because if Michael Bloomberg gets assassinated tonight, um, which you know I hope doesn't happen. I, I don't know the guy, but seems to be a nice fella. Um, Bloomberg is still going to make a tremendous amount of money. Uh, and, and, and it's probably going to continue to grow. If Tony Robbins gets assassinated tonight, uh, which, again, totally hope it never happens, right? But, it, you know, whenever he perishes, Tony Robbins' companies is, is not exactly a viable business anymore. So um, if you do want to build something of, of, you know, that you want to exit, yeah, uh, unplug it from your own personal name in terms of the URL. I mean, that's like step one. If you got to make a gradual shift, make a gradual shift. Um, step two, in terms of eventual sale, and we didn't talk anything about this, Yaro, but um know your books in and out. So if if you are better at InfusionSoft than you are at QuickBooks, that's called a phase and you move beyond that phase. Eventually, if you want to build a business of worth, um, your core skills are knowing where you are kind of with cash standings and in, in terms of growth and profitability. Um and that those are actually more important skills than tactics, because you can tactic your way broke. Um but if your if your books are in order all the time and you're able to execute on, on decisions based on cash and on growth and profit, um, y- you'll actually build a company, not a bucket of tactics. So very strong finances from day one is what I advise. I def- definitely advise people to have a experienced bookkeeper um, who they speak with either weekly or monthly to hit them with all the questions you can and make sure your books are clean as a whistle at the end of every single month. This is not because learning finance is fun. This is not because... Learning finances is has to be your favorite thing. It's because if you don't understand finance, you can't build a worthwhile business. So we didn't talk about this at all. But um, you know, QuickBooks is a grown-up tool. Mailchimp is a tool that is a face. and then eventually you hand that off to somebody else because if you're a CEO, you your biggest thing is not going broke and and it's feeding your employees. It's not tactics. So. Um, nailing your QuickBooks, really knowing your numbers. I'm not a math person, Yaro. I was not born a math person. I didn't want to be a math person. I'm still not one. However, I know my books and I know my books inside and out because I want to build something that's saleable. I want to know where I'm steering. I want to base all my decisions on where I'm going with cash. Yeah, so uh, know, know your bookkeeping and your, your accounting. So know, know what your profit and loss looks like every month. Know what your balance sheet looks like every month and talk to a bookkeeper actively be, be a really active participant in that. It might take you six months or a year to really feel like you have a great pulse on your books. But when you do, you become a rarity. You make banks and buyers feel excellent about the company because they're talking to somebody who knows what happens with the cash. If you know what happens with the cash, um, you are an, an excellent seller. You're going you're gonna to have enthusiastic conversations and people are going to actually respect you. If you don't know your finances, you're in huge trouble. So that's big. And then the second thing, Yaro, is to go through the exercise we talked about with the white piece of paper. Put your value proposition at the top of the piece of paper uh, and then write down in phases and in steps what does it look like to, um, to, to have somebody else or a team of other people deliver on that value proposition without you. Uh, what can you do in the next – what can you do over the next two years to make yourself completely – unnecessary to deliver on your core value proposition, then you're going to have a fully saleable company. So brainstorm that out loud, set up your steps and then execute on a basic plan there. I talked a little bit about how I did it, uh, which should be helpful, but I think uh, everybody else would, would be served by going through the same exercise. So those would be the two big ones that I would say would be necessary.
0: Fantastic Dan, so while we have a stable internet connection here because we had a few hiccups at the end there, uh, just a good good time for us to wrap up. I think you've done a great job of of connecting the dots from part one of this interview and how you sold the business and prepared it for sale. Uh, Just out of curiosity for everyone and, and myself, uh, the vision was to sell, to get capital, to start an AI-related uh, media company, I believe. So where are you at with that today? And, and where yep. can we find out more about what you're currently doing or any websites you want to share with us? For
1: sure, yeah. I, I uh, So Tech Emergence is the, the market research uh, firm that I've built. Actually, recently, oh, this is actually probably be pretty interesting for, for your folks. We do a lot of market-specific research on where AI is impacting uh, different industries, and we just did a really big one on uh, artificial intelligence in marketing tech, which is pretty cool as an internet marketer guy myself, so I'll, I'll zing that along to you, but yeah, techemergence.com is the website, I'll send you that specific uh, report, which actually might be kind of interesting, it's like, it's a, an easy crossover for, for your audience, so we're, we're actively working on and building that, my goals right now, Yaro, are to find uh, a head of editorial, and then kind of a main uh, person for development skill, and then really continue to scale and start making sales with that company uh, within, you know, for market research uh, related stuff uh, in the next maybe six months or so. So that's where we are with Tech Emergence. And I, I should also mention, uh, although I don't often do interview things on, on the marketing side, I still actually write about marketing tactics and marketing automation um, at clvboost.com which I mentioned I think the first time I was on your show I still have the blog and I still send out an email on a regular basis so if people want to know like the specific stuff that I talked a lot about email today people want to know like the the email strategies uh, that we use to grow the other business clvboost.com has a white paper on that stuff that could be useful so in terms of value for the audience um you know tech emergence is the market research firm I'll send you the cool stuff on marketing there uh and then clv is the place where I still talk about all these uh Kind of online growth strategies. So if people want to, you know, find me, those are probably the easiest ways. Or just hit me up on Twitter, and I can send you the link later, Jarl. But I'm always happy to answer questions
0: there as well. So yeah, that's that's where I'm at today. And of course, scienceofskill.com to see the business you sold.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm totally not there anymore. But if you want to take a look at what it looks like today, um, people can check out Science of Skill and see see what it what it uh, what it looks like. You can go to instructors. You can see that I'm listed as you know, one of twelve instructors or something like that. Um, and you'll get an idea of how depersonalized the business was by the time we had the exit.
0: Mm. Okay, great stuff, Dan. Thank you. So techemergence.com, C V no CLV dot com and scienceofskill.com to see the, bet, the past the present and the future, I guess, is the yes, best way to put yes, it. Yes, that,
1: that that is the best way to put it. Yeah, man.
0: <laughs> That's awesome, Dad. Well, I'm excited to, to keep following you. I know you, you you pop up now and then on my, my Facebook feed of having done something. <laughs> I just sold my business. I just launched my business. So I'm sure there's going to be something related to tech emergence very soon. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Keep up the good work, and uh, I guess I'll talk to you soon.
1: Yeah, thanks. You're all glad to be here, man.
0: Okay, wow, that was a great interview with Dan. I love that because I personally am an expert-based entrepreneur. My business is very much about the Yarrow brand. So my head was always spinning as Dan talked, thinking about, well, if I want to one day sell the Entrepreneur's Journey business, my brand, then I could do the things Dan did. So hopefully, if that's the kind of person, the kind of business you are running, you are also getting a lot out of what Dan was talking about. And you might make some changes now going forward that one day in maybe the months or years in the future might lead to a big sale of your business like Dan has with that million dollar result. So thanks, Dan, for sharing that story. Just before I wrap up this episode of the EJ podcast, make sure you go to interviewsclub.com enter your email address into the form you find on that blog post and that will sign you up for the email newsletter I maintain to update people whenever I release new EJ podcasts like this one with Dan. So to make sure you always get them as soon as they're released direct to your email inbox, go to interviewsclub.com, sign up there and you'll get everything I release as soon as it's released. Okay, that's it from me. My name is Yarrow. Thank you for listening to this EJ podcast episode. And I'll talk to you again on a future episode very soon. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.